speaker um, who also taught at our school of ministry last year at our, to, with our second year students, right? Or was it both? Both? She was phenomenal. I, I was there when she was teaching the second year students. She has got an incredible gift of teaching and, um, and just makes things so tangible and reachable for you. So you're, you're really in for a treat. Um, it's another person who worships here at Blazing Fire. And um, her name, if you would honor with me, is Tammy Von Horn. There she is. You can't hear me. In terms of the school, my own plug for the school is I, it's one of my favorite places to teach. Um, I, you'll hear me in a little bit. I have a way of seeing things a little bit different. I've been in the church for all of my life. And so when I approach scripture, I want something new out of it. Oh, okay, good. And so I have a different perspective. And so I love coming in and, and, and working with the students because they, um, they'll go places with me. Um, this year, what we did, the very first week we were together, I made everybody go out to the mall and take pictures. And the only instruction was you couldn't pray for anybody, you couldn't heal them, you couldn't prophesy. All you could do was take their picture and tell them they were beautiful. I think all the students thought I was nuts, um, but most of them did it and enjoyed and it was a good time. So um, from, a, from a teacher perspective, it's an awesome place to be. And there are times that I wish that I could have been there every day just to be with them. So I'm thrilled to be able to speak tonight. Um, most of the time, people don't tell you where their sermons come from, but I thought I'd pull back the curtain and tell you a little bit. I got an email from Pastor Brent. I happened to be in China on a business trip. And it was about the day, probably about the fourth or fifth day that I was there. And just beginning to feel a little homesick. Like, wow, China's really far away. They don't all speak English. And boy, what I'd give for an American meal. And I came in and got the email asking if I'd, if I'd share. And I thought, okay, God, is this okay? Because I generally say yes to everything. And then God says, you know, why don't you say no? Um, so I was like, God, can I do this one? And I ended up going into a press conference. And my only job in the press conference was to be the American so I was to welcome them in English. They were going to be thrilled that an, English, that an American was in the room. And then I was going to leave because it was all going to be in Chinese and I don't speak Chinese. And so my coworker said, you know, Tammy, you're going to be very bored. You're not going to under, understand anything. So just, you know, after five minutes, walk out. So I'd intended to do that. And as I sat there, I thought, well, you know, maybe this time supernaturally I'll understand Chinese. I'll stick around for a little bit. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but I'm hoping. Um, and as I sat there, I, I was like, God, you know, could I, could I? And he goes, well, as a matter of fact, and so for the next hour while they were busy talking about technology, I got the entire thing that he wanted me to share. And it all started because the reporter at the end of the table, I looked at him and God said, doesn't he look a little sad? And I go, yeah, he does. And I go, why? And he goes, because this man has a passion and he has a gift for music. In fact, if he were to have pursued his dream, he would be one of the biggest stars in China. But his father never thought it was good enough. And so he became a respectable reporter and hates his life. And I was like, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, can I say something? He goes, no, I'll work with him. But he goes, I don't want people to live under the perceptions of what's acceptable anymore. Because when I've planted a dream in them and I've given them gifts, if they settle for what looks right, 
their entire life they imprison themselves. And they're the only ones who built the prison. They're the only ones who have the key. But if they'll never walk out, then they'll never be who I created them to be. So that's the background. Right. Wonderfully, I took lots and lots of notes. That was back in May. So this week, I've had to go back and figure out what I wrote down. Um, <laughs> so, so, it's, so it's brand new to me, because I kind of couldn't read my own writing. But my coworkers were so impressed. In fact, they asked me, wow, have you been studying Chinese? Because you took great notes. And I just laughed and said, well, I'm picking up some things. So. So tonight, what I wanted to talk about was, I believe that there are two questions that define your life. Everything else falls within these two categories. And how you answer these two questions will determine how much you actually live. The first question, oh, that is a little light, is who is God? If you believe that God is mean and bad, that's the way your life will be defined. But the second question is, who are you? Do you know who you are? And not just you generically, but you individually. Because when God created you, he only created one of you. There will never, ever be another person like you ever. There's never been anyone since the beginning of time like you. You are one of a kind. So do you know beyond the generic, I'm loved of God, do you know who you are individually? If you read Pastor Brent's email, you know that I asked to bring your Bibles and mirrors. How many people brought mirrors or have a compact in your purse? or have a mirror application on your iPhone. <laughs> For those of you who don't, I did bring some mirrors, so if my, my, guys will, my guys and my girls will pass those out. I don't have enough for everyone to have one, but if you can have one and share with those around you, then, um, then that would be great. So, and just for this side of the room, my husband's actually passing out wafers. So since we live in the Silicon Valley, this is what a chip looks like before it's cut. Um, and it's a fabulous mirror, fabulous. So we'll pass those out. Good, don't be shy. Someone earlier said, I have my Bible, and that's good enough. And I thought, well, yes, but you want to actually see your reflection. It'll be useful later. You can do that, absolutely, no problem. They reflect the lights well. Just don't blind each other. So, And then housekeeping, in case things end a little funny tonight. When you're done at the end of service and you're done with your mirror, there's a basket in the back right underneath the church pictures. And there's a basket up here, so you can just throw your place, your mirrors gently into one of those two baskets, please. Good. Anybody else? We actually have more mirrors here. Good. <laughs> yes, if you're bored, play with the lights. No problem. Very good. I know. <laughs> we are shining lights. Yes, we are. Okay, good. I think we're just about done passing out the mirrors. Pierre, there's one in the back, all the way in the back. Good. Excellent. Okay. And yes, if you want to admire yourself through the service, that would be completely appropriate, as you will soon see. Okay. Oh, good. Well, as I mentioned, there's two questions, right? The first question is, who is God? Now, we talk a lot about who God is in this house, right? But 
the questions that everyone has to answer, even people who aren't sure there is a God, is, is God good or is he bad? Is he for me or is he against me? Does he only like me on days when I'm good or does he like me on days when I'm bad? If you determine that God is a God who loves you only when you're good, then you will only see him work on days when you actually believe that you're good. Now, he'll work all the time. It's just we have a way of seeing the world through what we actually believe. And so even if you go to a church like Blazing Fire that tells you that God is always good, if your experience of God doesn't match that, you will always see evidence that what you believe is true. Now, it won't be true, but what you see is what you look to find proof for. Okay? So who is God? That determines so much of what life is. And even though you go to a place like Blazing Fire and you hang out with people who are crazy and believe that God is good even when circumstances aren't, um, it doesn't matter. It's what you believe because that shapes what you see. Okay? Say next. So the next question that I talked about is, so who are you? Are you good? Are you bad? Um, are you perfected now? Or are you simply a work in progress? Who are you? This is a question that every single one of us has to ask because none of us ever get to live a life without answering this question. Even for people who are not introspective, it doesn't matter. However you see yourself is going to determine how you live. If you remember in the Old Testament, the Israelites said that they were grasshoppers. And because they believed they were grasshoppers, they did not want to go into the land of promise. They did not want to face the giants because they had already determined that they were so tiny that if they stepped foot into that land, they would be squashed. Now, unfortunately, if I were to ask, how many of you believe you are grasshoppers? I don't think anybody would raise their hands. However, if I were to ask you, how many of you believe that you could possibly lose your job because the economy isn't so good and they're laying people off and you really don't have that many skills and you're probably the last man on the totem pole, I would probably get people who would raise their hands. And although you're not saying I'm a grasshopper, what you are saying is I am completely replaceable. My future employment is completely dependable upon men and women who will make choices about me. And I'm just a little grasshopper in the grand scheme of the American economy. Ouch. Right? Now, is that true? No, not at all. It may feel true, and people will tell you it's true. In fact, they'll show you slides and charts and graphs that it's true. But it's not. Right? Because, again, going back to if God is good and he's always for me, then it really doesn't matter what the economy is doing. But, again, who do you believe you are? Just a little yum for those of you who are taking notes. Um, I found something that was so delicious last night. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but write it down and go look at it later. <laughs> Isaiah 8, 11 through 22. Read it. Read it out loud. Read it in multiple translations. Little clue. Isaiah said that God told me that I was not to think like everybody else. Wow. Go read it. It's excellent. Now, if you believe that you're a giant killer, then you're going to be like David. right? David was a runt. He was not very impressive any way that you looked at him. Do you want the reference again? Isaiah 8, 11 through 22. Okay, read it. Delicious. David was a runt. There was nothing impressive about him. In fact, he was so not impressive, his own dad forgot that he existed. Okay, and yet David came to believe that he was a mighty man. 
when he had no title and he had no position, he had no woman, he had nothing. And because of it, he killed animals just to protect the sheep because he had a mentality that he knew that he was somebody great even when nobody else agreed with him. So if you are like David and you have nothing and you don't look very impressive and nobody is saying anything nice about you, but you know that you're a giant killer, that's the way you live. That's, right. that's the way you live. So however you determine who you are and who God is will determine the expanse of your life. You think God isn't always for you. You think you're a grasshopper. You're going to live a very small life. You may feel very safe, but it will be very tiny. Okay? If you believe God is always good, but you're a grasshopper, well, you're probably going to teeter a lot. So how you answer those two questions determines everything else, everything else. So I thought tonight, since, again, we talk a lot about who God is, we're going to leave that question. But I want to talk about who you are. And I thought one of the best ways to look at this, I mean, we could individually, one of my favorite things to do, especially in school of ministry, is I make all the students stand up and talk about how amazing they are. Um, and it's wonderful, because most of them squirm. Um, and I love that, um, which is kind of mean, but I love that. But the reason why they squirm is because it's not something we normally do. Right? The only place where you're ever supposed to talk about how wonderful you are is in a job interview. But outside of a job interview, if you talk about how amazing you are too much, generally what do people think you are? Proud, stuck on yourself, a little conceited, nothing positive. And yet, right, when God created you, he created you looking in the reflection of the mirror and made you in his image. And we have no problem saying that God's fabulous, but somehow he decided to make, I don't know, mass people who all have flaws? No. So if you want to try this in the privacy of your home or in a public place, talk about how amazing you are. There's something that happens as it begins to free you up, but beyond it, it calls other people around you into that same freedom. And you'll watch that as you talk about how amazing you are, they begin to lift their heads too. Because there's hope that maybe they're not as bad as they fear. Okay? So let's look at Jesus. Jesus is supposed to be our prototype, right? He's our big brother. It says in Romans 8, 29, 1 John 3, 2, and also 2 Corinthians 3, 18, that we are being turned into his likeness and that there will be a point when he is revealed and when we see him, we'll be shocked at how much we look alike. So if we are like Jesus and that is our prototype, that's who we're going to look like. Let's see what he looked like. Now, I would love, this was so great, actually. I woke up very early one morning this week, which I don't do. Okay, but there's no slides that are moving. Thank you. So I woke up and God said, read John 3, 6, and 9. And I'm like, all three chapters. Okay, let's do that. So tonight we're going to camp out in John 3, 6, and 9. If you want to, for fun, when you go home, read them. They're amazing. But for the sake of time, rather than going through them, which I would love to have done, um, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. So in John 3, Jesus and Nicodemus have an encounter. And Jesus talks about being born again and tells him, you know, you're, you're, you're a Pharisee. How can you not understand the most basics? If you can't understand something as easy as this, how will you understand when I tell you things about heaven? Later on in that chapter, um, John the Baptist's disciples, fabulous, they come to John the Baptist and they're like, you know that guy that you said was the Messiah? He's still in our crowd. It's a problem. And um, fabulous, right? John's the preparer of the Messiah, and even his disciples are upset that their numbers are dwindling. 
Love it. Um, and John the Baptist reaffirms who he actually says, who, and reaffirms who Jesus is. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Then in John 6, next, okay, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus walks on the water. Uh, there are multiple places where he walked on the water. Jesus must have liked walking on water. So he walks on the water, scares his disciples. His disciple goes, oh, that's Jesus. And they bite him into the boat, and they're immediately transported to the shore. Nice little supernatural thing going on there. And then the day after the free lunch bunch, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. And right, first this crowd loves him, but the next day when he starts talking about being the bread of life, the crowd's thin. The crowd's thin. If anything, I have great compassion for that crowd because can you imagine they were raised all of their lives to not eat blood, right? If you were Jewish, you did not eat blood because God said don't eat blood. And you certainly don't eat human flesh, right? Because, you know, being a cannibal was also one of the prohibitions in the Old Testament. And yet here's this guy who stands up and says, drink my blood and eat my body. Now, for you and I, we've been raised with communion forever. This isn't even a foreign concept. People who aren't even saved take communion during their weddings because it's nice symbolism. But to have been in that crowd and to hear something that's so opposed everything that you had ever been taught, no wonder they thinned out, right? I mean, no wonder. I mean, you got to have total compassion. Jesus sounded like a nutcase. And yet, they just didn't know how to handle it. Okay, and then in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. That's all that happens in John 9. But it ends up causing this huge riff in the church. The Pharisees go nuts. They don't know how to handle it. The parents get called in. The parents go, oh, please don't talk to us. He's a grown man. So basically, a miracle happened, and they just didn't know how to handle it. So that's what's going on in our chapters. Now, as I read through these, again, I warned you, I like to see things a little bit differently. As I read through these, I thought, I was a little surprised to see the things that Jesus said he was, right? Because this is all about who are you. So who did Jesus say he was? Now, if you've been in the church forever like me, all of these you've heard 100,000 times, you understand the theology, you understand how it came to be, and you just think, oh, yes, I want to eat Jesus' body. Because that's normal for us. But imagine, this crowd does not have any of that paradigm at all. So everything that Jesus says is so absolutely strange, they don't know how to place it. So I want to show you some of the things that Jesus said he was in these three chapters, and I'd invite you to listen the same way that those people in that crowd would have heard him. And um, I love Jesus. I am saved. <laughs> However, if had I been one of those people in that crowd, the guy is absolutely out of his mind insane, or he's right. Because they're so out there that you cannot go halfway, okay? Now, this is Jesus saying who he is. So this is Jesus in his own words. So John 3, is, or John 3 isn't so bad. John 3, he says, I came down from heaven. And in verse 15, he says, and everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Now, again, challenging you to hear this a little bit differently. If Lonnie got up here and he said, by the way, everybody, I came down from heaven, and if you believe in the things I say, you will never die. Even though you love Lonnie, what would you think? Right? Some of you would go, oh, he has a new revelation of Jesus. That's what Jesus promised all of us. That's fabulous. Others of you would go, I'm not sure this is the church for me. Right? This is what they would have heard Jesus say. Jesus in his own words. 
Okay, John 9, I'm going to skip to John 9. If I go this way, maybe that'll help. John 9, he isn't quite so bad. We could just hit the next slide. Or just the next build, rather. Okay, John 9, he isn't so bad. Now, in verse 5, this actually, I, didn't, I hadn't read this in a while. It says, while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. No, just quick aside. If he's only the light of the world when he's in the world, so now he's in heaven, who's the light of the world now? Right? So he f- showed us how to do it, and then he said, you're the light. Right? I set you on a hill. I don't want your light to be hidden. Right? He, again, being our prototype, showing us how it's done. In verse 39, he said, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Okay? Now, again, not too bad. Right? Chapter 9 is actually pretty okay. I'd not really trip out if I heard Jesus say those things for the first time. But let's go to chapter 6. Now, in chapter 6, this is where he feeds the 5,000, he walks on the water, and he gives the bread of life sermon. Jesus says, don't be afraid, I'm here. Now again, if you're a Christian, this feels really good because we know when Jesus is around, we don't need to be afraid. If this is a guy you're here preaching for the first time, if he stands up here and he goes, hey, don't be afraid, I am here. (laughs) You understand why people may have had problems. This is what Jesus said. Jesus then said in verse 29, God the Father gave me the seal of his approval. Now, on this one, since we get everything Jesus gets, do you realize that you walk around with God's seal of approval? No matter what anybody else says about you, no matter what you believe about you, you walk around approved, right? Remember the good housekeeping seal, and it meant that that was a quality product? You are sealed with the very seal of approval of the Creator. Isn't that awesome? Verse 29, God only wants you to believe in me. Again, He's either crazy or he absolutely confidently knows who he is. And because he knows who he is, he can actually declare, here's who I am. Here's who I am. (laughs) Verse 33, I came down from heaven and give life to the world. Jesus didn't even say, I came down from heaven and I'm going to help Jerusalem out. Or I came down from heaven and I really love Israel. He said the entire world gets life because I came. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will never hunger or thirst. Wow. This is Jesus in his own words. Now, this chapter is even more fun. And He goes on and he says, I came down from heaven to do God's will, not my own. I will raise all who believe in me from the dead on the last day. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father, only I, who was sent from God have seen him. So Jesus is claiming, you guys haven't seen God, but I have. Wow, what a claim. Again, he's either crazy or he's so confident that he knows who he is that he has no problems declaring who he is. Okay, next one. If you eat me, you will never die, but you will live forever. Again, thinning of the crowds, right? But that's his promise. Now, you and I take great, great, great comfort in this, right? And then the the last one is just too fabulous. The very words I speak are spirit and life. Okay, so this, this, this Jesus makes all these claims, and then the exclamation point at the end is, all my words are spirit and life. How do you argue with somebody like that? You can't. 
So again, he's either totally crazy or he's so confident in who he is, he can declare it. Now, I believe as our prototype, we're actually to be able to declare things like this. And, and, and the reason why we can declare things is because he absolutely was confident in who he was because in most of these situations, he wasn't defending himself. He was arbitrarily giving them information. So declaring without them even asking, and yet he said all of these things. When you and I come into a revelation of who we are and how God created us, these are the sorts of things we will begin to declare about ourselves individually. No longer are we allowed to be able to say things like this, you know, God loves me even though I have issues. You know, God thinks I'm amazing even though we're still working on my temper. There's no more apology that's acceptable because Jesus didn't say in any of these things, I've seen the Father, but you know, sometimes I get mad. He never apologized and he never went halfway. He confidently declared who he was. When we begin to understand who we are, a lot of the things that we will say, people will have to ask the same questions. Either Tammy is nuts or she actually knows who she is. Okay, so how did Jesus know who he was? This is a theological question. So how many of you, how many of you and I'll actually ask you to vote on this one, so if you'll raise your hand, that would be great. How many of you believe that when Jesus was born, he absolutely already knew he was the Messiah and just knew he was fulfilling his mission? Raise your hand. Okay, some portion of you. Good. How many of you believe he had to figure it out just like we did? Okay. How many of you have no clue and don't want to vote? Okay. I would love to tell you the correct answer. However, I will simply say I don't really know. I, I, I don't know. Um, I have done lots of research and there's great support on both sides of the camp. But let's suppose for tonight that just like you and I, he had to figure it out. Right? Because it said that he left heaven, he was stripped of everything, and he came in human form. So if he came not knowing who he was and he had to figure it out, doesn't that kind of fit the model like us? Because isn't that what most of life is? It's about figuring out who you are, who you're called to be, how you were created, why you have that little thing about you that you have. I think Jesus probably had to figure it out too. So if he had to figure it out, how did he figure out he was the Messiah? Right? We're not talking about an ordained minister or a rabbi or a really good teacher or a great motivational speaker, but the actual fulfillment of all of Scripture. Right? How much faith do you have to have to actually believe that you're the Messiah? When all of Jewish history said that there was always some guy who came around that thought he was the one. So you weren't the first one who thought you were the Messiah. And all the other ones weren't. And all the other ones were severely wrong, and most of them ended up being killed. So how did, you, how did Jesus have the stamina, the fortitude to actually determine that he was the Messiah? Well, in Scripture, there's only three, three options that we see in which he may have come to understand who he was. So at birth, his birth was pretty miraculous. There were the angels, the wise men, the shepherds. There was the prophecy from Anna and Simeon. Now, if Jesus was a normal baby, which I believe he was, he probably cried, needed his diaper changed. Probably he wasn't fully aware of what was going on on the night he was born. 
but may have heard stories from mom, from dad, from friends. Right, so this would have been secondary information. The second time that we see he may have had any indication of who he was was when he was 12 and he was in the temple. Now, you know the story. They'd gone to Jerusalem for the festival. His parents took off with the rest of their entourage, assuming Jesus was with them. Um, for anyone who is a parent and thinks you have to be perfect, Mary was chosen by God to be the mother of God, and she lost him. You're okay to make mistakes. It comes with a job description. Totally fine. So three days out, they're like, oh, where's Jesus? We left him. They go back to Jerusalem, and they find him. And while he's there, the scribes and the Pharisees are amazed at the wisdom of this young boy. And, you know, they ask, Jesus, why are you here? And he goes, why are you surprised? Of course, I'm about my father's business. And it's a little hard to understand that terminology because what tone of voice did he use? You know, was he 12 and so he was kind of rebellious? Well, no, because it says he never sinned. So was he just, you know, teaching his poor mother who didn't quite understand? You know, it's hard to figure out what tone of voice would he have used. I, I don't know how that would have sounded. But scripture does say that his parents didn't understand what he meant. So they were kind of shaking their heads going, okay, well, let, let's go home. But maybe at 12, Jesus had some indication as to who he was. Because at that point, we get the first glimpse that with confidence, he knew that there was something about him. That there was something that set him apart, that made him uniquely him. And then the biggest place where we begin to see where Jesus may have understood who he was, was at baptism. Now, fascinating history with what happened in terms of the baptism. When Jesus approaches John, John's baptism was all built on asking for forgiveness, repenting of your ways, and turning. When Jesus approaches John, John says, I can't baptize you. Because John, with the ability that he had to see, knew that Jesus had no sins to be forgiven of. If, if, John, if Jesus was to do some big repentance and turning away from something, there was nothing there for him to turn away from. And so John very clearly said, you don't even qualify to be baptized. And so there's an interaction that happens between two of them, and Jesus says, but you have to so that it's fulfilled. Now, with most of us, right, we believe that Jesus simply had to be baptized, and so Jesus was saying, look, just go along with the script. We've got to get this taken care of, right? This is the next box. But that wasn't the case. In order for a, for a Messiah, for a king, to be, to be anointed, he had to actually be anointed. And he had to be anointed by a prophet. So when Saul came to power, he was anointed by Samuel. When David came to power, he was anointed by Samuel. Every king in Israel had always been anointed by a prophet. And so Jesus was saying, John, you are the prophet, and I must be anointed. Will you anoint me so that we can follow proper protocol here? That's what was going on. And so can you imagine the honor that even John got? Because John is getting to anoint the king. Right? Now there's some, there's, there's some history in terms of John that John had been told when he was looking for the Messiah that he would know the man who was the Messiah because the Holy Spirit would descend on him and would rest on him. With all of the other prophets in the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit descended, it descended for a time and a place and a season but it was a temporary sitting on. But it says that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and rested and stayed, marking that this prophet was not a prophet tied to one time, one mission. 
but that instead the Holy Spirit found a final resting place on this man. So the crazy thing is John determines that Jesus is the Messiah upon seeing him before the heavens open, before he sees the Spirit. He knew because of what he saw that this was the one he'd been waiting for. And so Jesus gets baptized. Now after Jesus gets baptized, he hears a voice from heaven. And God's voice says, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. You bring me great joy. Now, we don't know if the crowds heard that voice or not, but we know Jesus heard that voice. Now, again, I've been in the church forever, so I just think, oh, that's really nice. You know, you know, Jesus is doing what he's supposed to be doing, and God's like, hey, good, good job, son. And he's like, yeah, Dad, and they go on their way. However, if Jesus is also figuring out who he is, this is a point where he audibly hears the voice of God saying, you're my son. You're my son. Now, I like to talk. I talk a lot. I like words. Many of my words are probably unnecessary. You can ask my husband. There are times when he patiently listens to me and wishes that I would stop talking. In this regard, I am not like God. God doesn't talk on and on and on and on and on. We wish he would, especially when we're going through a hard time, right? God, can you just tell me anything, and can you keep talking and talk about anything, and just I just want to hear your voice, and on and on and on. Please don't ever shut up. And he's like, Tammy. Hey, God never uses wasted words. There's no prophecy in Scripture where God arbitrarily puts in, oh, yeah, and then yesterday I washed the dishes. There's no erroneous or extra information that God provides. So since we don't see that, this wasn't just a cute little exchange for our benefit because it makes the story neat. It meant that there was a necessity for God to say, this is who you are, and I love you. You bring me joy. Now, if this was the first time, and we don't know this, but if this was the first time that Jesus audibly heard God's voice, how much credence did Jesus put on hearing that prophetic declaration from his father? Well, actually, he put a ton because if you go back and you look at his interaction after the point of baptism, Jesus begins to refer to himself as the son, and he begins to refer to God as my father. So hearing that one voice, that one voice, that one declaration, so shifted who Jesus understood who he was, that he took it and he claimed it as his own. And immediately it says that he was led out to the desert. But when you have, and some of you have had this, where God has audibly said something, either out loud that you heard him or that you heard him hear, and you know that when God speaks and you hear him, there's something that shifts. In that moment, there is no doubt. In that moment, there is no, oh, well, what if? That moment comes afterwards. But in the moment that you hear him, it is as though time and space stops, and everything fades away, and he looks right at you, and you take it in because there's no barrier, right? It's only after the moment ends and then we begin to analyze and is it possible and what about this and what about this? And when we begin to go logical with the words of God, that's usually when the fear and the doubt and all the other stuff comes in, right? Because logic and God just don't go very well together. So Jesus so heard this that he took it on and decided that it was truth, and actually changed the way he referred to himself. I'm the father, I'm the son, and he's my father. Wow. Okay, now let's get to the temptation. Oh, actually, before we do that, I'm just too excited. So 
Jesus has this confidence in terms of who he is. But what did other people say? Right, because a lot of times, especially in a prophetic camp, we love the prophetic words, but then we want other prophetic people to um, keep reinforcing that word, right? Because it's not that we want to rely on them, but it just feels better when other people say the same thing. Okay, so did Jesus get this? Well, in John 3, let's go back through our chapters. Nicodemus said, Jesus, you were sent by God to teach us. Your miracles are signs that God is with you. Nice, right? Here's a, a, a good Pharisee who recognizes who Jesus is. I talked a little bit about John's disciples, right? John's disciples, these are John the Baptist's disciples. They were apparently all looking for the Messiah. <laughs> and yet John's disciples said, you know, that man that you said was the Messiah. Probably not an indication of their belief that he actually thought he was the Messiah. But John the Baptist's endorsement of him is fabulous. And actually, in John 3, 27 and 35, let's read that together. So if you have your Bibles, John 3, 27 to 35. So John is responding to his disciples. And John says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Even this is huge, because John understands his role. John knows that as great as my ministry may be, I'm only the best man. I'm not the one going on the honeymoon. I'm not the one who's getting to kiss the bride. I am in a support role. But in the role that I play, I am thrilled to watch what is unfolding. Tammy's commentary, okay? Verse 30, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Christians who have a grasshopper mentality love this verse. Because what this says is, it isn't about me, and God wants nothing of me. He only wants this empty vessel that will only look like him. Because just like John, I have to become less and less. John was not advocating in this verse that you were to become an empty vessel who had no identity but a reflective quality. He was saying in his position that as the bridegroom took his role, that his role would diminish because it would no longer be necessary. So you are not to become less and less. Right? Songs that say, oh, Lord, more of you and less of me. If my husband came to me and ever said, Tammy, I love you so much, but I want nothing of you. I want you to reflect only me. I want you to like only the things that I like. I want you to only appreciate the things that I like. Because I, when I see you, I only want to see me. That would not be love. That would not be love. And yet, that is the way that we make God out to be. That God loves us so much, he wants nothing of us. Nothing. He only wants a pure reflection of him. Not the case. So you are not supposed to become less and less, and that is not what John is saying, right? After the wedding is over, if the, bride, if, if the best man starts hanging out with the bride and groom and never goes away, the groom's going to take him aside and be like, thank you, friend. Go home. <laughs> Okay, going back. Verse 31. He has come from above, so he's talking about Jesus, and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth, and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. 
He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. I actually think that part's for us. Do you actually believe the things that Jesus says about you? Anyone who accepts, accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God. He speaks God's words, for God gives him the spirit without limit. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hand. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Now that little phrase, he gives him the spirit without limit. If Jesus is our big brother and he's our prototype and we get to be like him, how much spirit do you have? Without limit. Without limit. You walk, right, as the first fruits of God, this new kind of creation that's never existed before. You're fully human, completely mortal. And yet you are completely filled with the spirit of God without limit. There is no part that is, that is left off without you. There's not even a tiered approach where Jesus says, well, now that you're mine, I'm going to give you the starter dose. You know, and if you, if you pass, then I'll up your Holy Spirit. And, you know, maybe in about 50 years, you'll be at like half capacity. It doesn't work like that. You too get the spirit without limit. That is who John declared Jesus was after that interaction. Yes, they were cousins, but there's nothing in history, there's nothing in scripture that would have suggested that they spent Easter's together. We don't know that they had any interaction growing up other than the first time when they met when they were both in the womb. So John knew who Jesus was, but John also knew who he was. Now, in John 6, let's see what everybody else's opinion was. In John 6, the free lunch bunch, right? So those 5,000 who got the free lunch, they were thrilled with Jesus. They said, surely Jesus is the prophet we've been expecting. Nice thing to say after the guy gave you lunch. The very next day, the bread of life crowd says, isn't Jesus the son of Joseph? We know his father and his mother. How could he say, I came down from heaven? Right? Yesterday, he's miraculous, the prophet we've been waiting for. Today, he's just the guy from Nazareth. Okay? Others in that same crowd said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Peter, the hero of the chapter, says, you are the Holy One of God. Again, if Jesus had been relying on what others said about him, it's a mixed crowd. John 9, though. Remember John 9? We had lots of problems in John 9. John 9, some of the Pharisees, after they see the blind man who is now seeing, so he's no longer blind, um, says, Jesus is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath healing people. Clearly, anybody who breaks the rules isn't from God. Other Pharisees says, how could Jesus, an ordinary sinner, do such miraculous things? Okay, I may offend some of you on this one, and I really apologize. But over the years, I've heard many, many, many people say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, every day I probably sin, but thank God... I am worthless, but because God is good, he loves me. When you begin to claim that you're just an ordinary sinner, guess who said it first? You become your very own Pharisee. You become your very own Pharisee. Right? If you want to, you can do that, but that is not how God sees you. You are not just an ordinary sinner when you become saved. You are so much more than that. If you claim you're just an ordinary sinner... You're just your own little Pharisee. The Jewish leaders, 
God should get the glory for this miracle because we know Jesus is a sinner. Now, how did they know he was a sinner? Wasn't that an assumption? Haven't you ever been in a crowd where somebody in authority has said, now every single one of you sins. You sin all the time. And if you don't know that you sin, it's because it's a sin of omission. (laughs) Wow, I am so bad that when I sin, I don't even know that I sin. Wow, because these people knew that Jesus was a sinner. Now, how did they know that? When John knew that he wasn't, and that's why he disqualified Jesus from being baptized. But they were sure because they'd never seen anybody without sin. They had no paradigm. They had no understanding. They had nowhere to put this on the map that there could possibly be somebody who did not sin. If you believe that you sin every day, believe me now, you do not. When you walk with the fullness of the Spirit without limit, there is a possibility that you walk so closely with God that you don't need to go back and constantly do the bad things, right? You're not a schizophrenic Christian who some days you're good and some days you're bad and sometimes I'm saved and sometimes I'm not. And if I'm just right, I can get it to heaven, but gosh, I hope I don't die really fast because I'll need to be able to repent. No. No. No, 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 that isn't the case. That isn't the case. Now, are there times that we forget who we are and we do dumb things? Yeah. Right, that's why his grace and his mercy is new every day in case we need it. But, but you are hardly an ordinary sinner. Okay, now the seeing blind man, again, he's the hero in this chapter. Again, he was the one who got the miracle. So he says Jesus must be a prophet. If Jesus were not from God, he could not have done this miracle. In fact, he goes so far as to say there has never been anybody who's been able to open blind eyes. But this one can't. So if he were a sinner... How in the world would he have the power to do something we've never seen? Right? Of course, the religious were very upset, told him he was wrong, that he also was a sinner and needed to deal with it. If Jesus had relied on the people around him to reinforce what he had heard God say, he probably would have never made it to the cross. Because how in the world do you live believing that you are the Messiah, but you're an ordinary sinner? You can't. You absolutely cannot. So Jesus did not rely on the opinions around him to affirm what he knew God was saying. There is something about that that you and I have to learn. When you and I begin to walk in the fullness of who we are and we get a glimpse of who we are, there will be a point when those around us will not agree. And in that moment, you have to have the audacity to know that you've actually heard what God said, even when it looks off. Or you're going to go right back down. When God designed you, since you are one of a kind, there are places that he designed you to go to which no one else has been. It talks about how he, he hid mysteries from the beginning of the earth just for you. Now, can you imagine how precious you must be that God, when he was creating the planet and figuring out biology and cell structure and, and wind patterns, that he said, you know what, for Mark, I'm going to put this little thing right here because during his life, it will bring him so much pleasure to discover this thing. Right? And normally, I don't think he does just one. But he does multiple mysteries because he knows that we love to discover things. And yet he took the time in that whole creative process to do that for every single individual. 
But the issue is for some of us, it will require that we're going to have to do things for which there is no mold. There is no pattern. We can't look and cite the three other people in history that did this, and it may not even fit the trend of the time. The only way that you will be able to go to the depths that God has called you to in those areas is if you're absolutely certain that God, number one, spoke to you, that he will keep you, and that thirdly, the Holy Spirit promised he'd lead you into all truth. So if in this one you are off your rocker and it's just you, don't worry, he'll get you back on track because he promised he would. Right? Do you realize how much insurance that is? If you go nuts, no worries, he'll get you back on path. You're okay. You're okay. So how did Jesus remain confident in who he was? I read some stuff this week that was just amazing. I had no idea. I was so thrilled to find it. But in the temptation in the desert, how many of you understand the temptations in the desert? As many years as I've been in church, they always seemed a little odd to me. But this explanation was so fabulous. So first, a temptation is not a temptation in unless it actually tempts you. I hate anchovies. If anybody ever says, Tammy, I got these nice anchovies for you, there is no temptation there for me whatsoever. They're hairy and gross and they smell bad. However, any time of the day or night, diet, no diet, if somebody offers me cheese, I'm going to say yes. In fact, I've told people when I get to heaven the first thousand years, I'll be at the bread and cheese table. That's where you'll find me because I can eat cheese without limit and it will have no negative effects on my body. And if the cheese on earth is good, can you imagine what the cheese in heaven will be? Yes. So, nothing is a temptation unless it actually tempts you. Okay, keep that in mind. So there were three temptations of Jesus. The first one, Satan approached Jesus and he said, if you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Now, did that just mean he was really hungry? Right? Have any of you ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread? Well, no. Now, some of you, if, you, if that's going to be your miracle, go for it, okay? No way am I saying it's impossible, but I would venture to guess probably nobody in this room has taken a stone and turned it into bread or pizza or anything else. That would not be a temptation for us because we don't even have the ability. So was Jesus just extremely hungry and was he a bread guy? If so, then that kind of makes it a, I mean, we can relate because we've all been on diets or some sort of, you know, 12 hours we couldn't eat for some blood test or something. But this had to have been more than he was just hungry. And what this actually was is Jewish people believed and knew that when a Messiah came, one of the job descriptions of a Messiah is he would provide bread miraculously. Joseph was a prototype. Joseph, in his wisdom, was able to manage the food supply of Egypt and save the entire nation of Israel and multiple other nations. They believed that it was a miraculous intervention of God. We believe the same thing. How do you go from the prison to the palace and get second in command unless God has orchestrated that? But beyond that, Moses. Moses was believed to be a prototype of the Messiah. And Moses, what did Moses do with bread? He caused manna. God caused manna, but Moses was the one who was seen as the instrument upon which God miraculously provided bread for 40 years for an entire nation. So if Jesus was the Messiah, then he was going to have to do something with bread because that's what Messiahs were supposed to do. So in essence, what Satan was saying is, well, now that you think you're the Messiah, 
you know, messiahs are supposed to turn stones into bread. Prove it. Prove it. Right? And Jesus says no. And the funny thing is Jesus says no, I don't have to prove that the word that I heard was true. I actually am the messiah. Juan, in that battle round, didn't fall to the temptation, and then later on did multiple bread miracles. So he actually did what he was supposed to do later. Secondly, Satan took him to the top of, a, of the temple, and he said, if you're the son of God, jump and prove it. Now, was Jesus just a daredevil? Was he suicidal? How could this have been a temptation? Right? Most people don't like jumping from tall buildings. I know at least two men in the room like jumping from planes. However, <laughs> Jesus probably didn't skydive. So what was the temptation? Well, the temptation was this. If Jesus had gone to the very top, the pinnacle of, of the temple and had fallen, Psalms 91 says that, G that God provides angels so that nothing would happen to them. Satan was saying, if you're truly the Messiah, if you jump from here, not only is God absolutely um, has to save you, but everyone in Jerusalem will see it too. And in that moment, when the crowds of Jerusalem see that you jump, you survive, and that God's provision is on you, they will want you to be their Messiah. Instant stardom. You can bypass the cross. You can bypass everything because instantly they will declare you their Messiah. So let's do it fast. Now, Jesus won because he said no and he refused to jump. And in refusing to jump, right, ultimately he did do the cross. And by going to the cross, by doing all that he did, he actually got exactly what Satan offered him, but he did it God's way. Okay? Okay, third, um, third one is, if you want the whole world, I can give it to you. Just worship me. Now, what's up with this? Why would this tempt Jesus? Right? Was Jesus just an egomaniac and he wanted to control the whole world? Or what was the temptation? Well, the temptation on this one is that he basically says, okay, you're the Messiah. You've come to give life to the entire planet. You've come to save everyone. Okay, well then why don't you hurry up and get it done? And scripture says that Satan took Jesus to a point in time and showed him all the nations of the earth. So we have no idea. Maybe he brought him to our modern time and showed him everything that was going on. And in that moment, I believe that Jesus was able to see, if I do it now, Jerusalem doesn't have to be ransacked. The temple does not have to be desecrated. Auschwitz doesn't have to happen. All of the suffering that will happen until my kingdom is established on the planet, we can forego. Because I'll be king and I can establish the messianic era today. That would have been the temptation. Let's stop human suffering and just get to the point. Right? And just like, but he didn't do it. He said, no, I'll wait. I'll wait for fulfillment of time. Those were the three temptations. Now don't they make a lot more sense? I mean, Jesus wrestled the same way that we do with, with wanting proof that what you heard was really what you heard, with wanting proof that God would actually keep his hand of protection on you, with wanting proof that God would actually fulfill his word on your life. And the last one, that maybe we need to just help God out so he can hurry up and get his work done. Right? That's what happened with Eve. Right? She was helping God out. It wasn't bad. It was just she thought she was getting something that God had withheld from her. Right? That is a temptation every single one of us at some point in our lives deals with. And yet Jesus handled them and handled them very well. So as our prototype, then what about you? 
how do you figure out who you are? The first thing that we always wrestle with is our perception, right? That's where the sermon came from. So what is your perfect life supposed to look like? Um, I'd say take a couple of minutes and actually think about it. For some of you, does that mean you're supposed to be married? For those of you who are married, are you supposed to be single? Because you know you'd have so much more freedom. If you have children, should you not have had them? Or maybe you had them too young or too old. Maybe you're supposed to make more money because if you made more money, they could go to a better school. They could go to Christian school because as Christian kids, they're supposed to get a Christian education. What is your perfect life supposed to look like? Because a lot of times what we do with our own little perceptions that most of the time don't get declared out loud, we again create these boxes, right? These cages upon which we're supposed to live, right? And, and it's hard because they're so slippery slope that we forget that actually those are not necessarily the way you were designed. So I'm pregnant and getting ready to have a baby. And I have wrestled with this in the last couple of months because everyone has told me how I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I'm not. I was in China. They were fabulous. I'm not supposed to wear makeup because apparently my baby will be born with eyeliner. I'm not supposed to wear high heels because the baby could get seasick. I'm not supposed to, to, to reach, like this is really bad, right, because I'm stretching her out. Um, my American friends are the same way though. I sh I'm not supposed to want to work after I have her because only a good mother would want to stay home only with her child. Um, my employer, I'm not supposed to want to take all my maternity leave because I should want to be at work to work. Everybody has opinions. Oh, because I'm old. Right? I am 36. I'm ancient. My, my doctor often tells me, because of my age, I'm supposed to take these tests. Everyone has ideas as to how my life is supposed to be lived. Right? And, and as much as I have my own opinions, it's a little hard to throw those off. Right? And my boss fabulously even told me that, you know, subtly, you know, we're supposed to get better financial planning because Pierre's really old too, and how are we going to afford retirement and college? Bad, bad. Anyway, in your free time, think about the things that you would declare as your perfect life. Now, in this kind of a culture, what gets a little bit scary is, is it's, we are taught to dream and to want things, and there's nothing wrong with dreaming and wanting things. In fact, it should enlarge your life rather than make it smaller. But when you've crossed over from a dream to it's supposed to look like this, you've gone from the freedom and the expanse of what God could give you to being very small, and here's my little cage, that until it fits into this cage, I'm probably off. Your perceptions about how your life is supposed to live can be very dangerous because they'll make it small. Right? Jesus was supposed to turn stones into bread. But because he didn't, he actually got to be the Messiah. Um, for me, oh wow, this is a personal story. You told so many personal stories when you were up here, so I thought I should probably throw one in that was really... Ugh. I have opinions, and I talk a lot, and I, I'm the person who walks into a room, and people are like, oh, the economy, oh, poor us. And I'm like, what about the economy? And all of a sudden, I'm preaching, right? And, and, and I thought, I, I'm not supposed to be like that. As a Christian, I'm supposed to always walk in love and mercy, and with a quiet spirit. And, 
and you know, people should want to be around me. They're not supposed to be offended because of the things that I say. So for a couple of years, I worked very, very hard to be a very nice, quiet person. It was very hard. I'd walk into a room, people go, oh, the economy. And I'd be like, oh, the economy. Because it wasn't me. But I was trying so hard to be nice, and I got really good at it. I didn't twinge quite so much when I would say the nice thing. And um, I went to SOMA, actually, which is the first school of ministry where Lonnie was at. And they had a prophetic speaker come in. And this poor prophetic woman, probably my second encounter with the prophetic, she came up to me. She goes, oh, girl, I'm so sorry. What happened to you? And I'm thinking, nothing? Oh, no, something bad's going to happen. And she sees it. Oh, no, that's what's going on here. And I'm like, nothing? She's like, you've killed off half your personality. And I'm like, okay, I don't know what she's talking about, and I've gotten really good at this nice thing. I've worked really hard to be like this. And she goes, God made you a bulldog. And not only have you chained him up, but you've started to kill him off. And God wants that part back. Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Part of me is like, yes, okay, she's coming back. And the other part's like, but we've worked so hard. I had a terrible little dog who barked all the time at anybody he thought was a threat. And so many times in the morning, God would say, see, Tammy, that's the way you are. I love you. And I'm like, great. I'm like my dog. <laughs> but it meant I didn't, have to be, I didn't have to be nice and say the right thing anymore because he resurrected the part that I'd killed off because it didn't fit my perception of what I was supposed to be like. And instead, I got to be how he created me to be. Since then, I've come to understand that the bulldog part of me is actually a really good thing because it's kept me going through some really hard times that had I not had that, I would have laid down and died voluntarily. Figure out your perceptions, identify them, and then kill them off. Let him define who you are, okay? Secondly, learn to hear what God says about you and then actually believe the things that you hear. Believe the things that you hear, even if they look scary. There are things that he's written in Scripture. You can spend the rest of your life going through Scripture, and if all that you ever do is believe the things that he actually writes about you, your life will be dramatically better than anything you've ever experienced. But beyond that, God says that he will give you revelation of who you are to you personally. If you get to the point where the things that God says about you are so uncomfortable because they're so good they couldn't possibly be true, you're beginning to scratch the surface. Write those things down and begin to believe them. And if you can't because they're just way too big, ask him for help to believe what he says about you. And then the biggest thing is John 6.29 is believe. So in John 6.29, this was right after the, the 5,000 are fed, the crowds come to Jesus and say, we want to do the same miraculous things you do. How do we do it? And Jesus tells them the only work that the Father has called you to do is to believe. Just believe. That's it. That's your only job. That's the only thing you're ever called to do. Because if you believe, nothing is impossible. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the crazy thing about belief is this, is no one can believe for you. Nobody can impart their belief on you. You can't hang out with the right people and hope it falls off on you. You're the only one who gets to choose what you believe. You're the only one. You're the only one, right? If that wasn't true, then people who went through concentration camps would have no choice but to believe that they were victims the rest of their life, and yet we have incredible stories of concentration camp people who come out and live amazing lives and give life to people. Corrie ten Boom, 
Her life should have been ruined, but she chose to believe something different, and she impacted the world. If you've had a crummy growing up, if you've had bad experiences, whatever your life story is is irrelevant because at the end of the day, you get to choose to believe. Right? God of the universe who created you, endowed you with so much power that he said, I will constantly tell you who you are. I will prove it to you time and time again, but I will never make you believe anything. That's your choice. That's your choice. So we started out tonight by saying there's two questions. There's two questions you get to understand. You have to answer, who is God and who are you? What we're going to do is I'm going to show you a little video clip. There was somebody in, in the school of ministry who actually showed this clip first. I don't know who that was, but Laura. So Laura showed it, and then Karen showed it, and I watched Karen talk about it last week, and it so impacted me. I was like, oh, i got to show it. So if you've already seen it, sorry, but for everybody else, this is amazing. I'd never seen Lion King until this week. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know quite. If you haven't seen Lion King, I know I should have. If you haven't seen Lion King like me, go watch it. It's a fabulous Christian movie that Disney put out. Um, they may not have known that, but that mess, the message of the movie was just so powerful. There's no way you could have missed it. Um, and we are living in the circle of life, and that's not new age. Okay. Um, but what I'm going to show you, the clip is this, right? So the, the Lion King got killed because of an accident that was staged by his evil brother. And Simba, the son, felt that it was his fault. The evil uncle told him it was his fault, told him to run. Simba takes off, decides he is disqualified from being the future king, um, and just lives happily. Okay? And in living happily, he ends up being found out. And this fabulous little monkey in the scene that we're about to see, for me, represents the Holy Spirit calling him back into who he was. Now, here's what we're going to do. After the clip is over, that's where you get to use your mirrors. Um, that's where you get to use your mirrors. And what we're going to do is this. Um, watch the clip. It'll make sense. I want you to take a couple of minutes in the mirror. The issue is this. Belief is a personal thing. You either believe it or you don't. But the only two people who ever know what you believe is you and God. And since it can't be imparted from somebody else and it can't be given by somebody else, it doesn't really make sense to have a line of people up here to pray for you to get something they can't give you. That's your choice, right? Also, you can get prophetic words all the time, and I recommend it. However, there is nothing that replaces the power that comes when you yourself hear from God directly, right? That was the whole reason why he said, I want to speak to you. Not, I want to speak through somebody else who will then tell you because maybe you can't hear because I didn't give you ears. That's not how he works. So what we're going to do is practice being like Jesus. Look in the mirror. For some of you, this actually could be a little bit painful. If it is, just pretend like you're doing your hair. You do it every day. But look in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, see what is reflected back at you. And in the privacy of that moment, ask God to actually tell you who you are. Here's my firm belief. I do not believe that you will fully come to understand who you are in the capacity of who you are until the end of time, like the end of forever. Because if you were created in the image of God, I do not believe that when we step into heaven, we'll instantly understand all that there is to know about God. Because those living creatures who have surrounded God forever say that they constantly get new revelation. And that new revelation, they're like, wow, holy, holy, holy. There's constantly new revelation about God. If you were created with the same expanse as him, 
guess what? You cannot possibly understand the expansiveness of who you are this side of earth. If you live to be 85, at the end of 85, you will begin to scratch the surface as to who you are. Like your creator, the rest of eternity, you too will be understanding more and more and more of the design of who you are. Self-discovery doesn't end at death. You don't need to hurry up. You have all of eternity to be amazed at what he packaged here. So what we're going to get today, if you know who you are, fabulous. Go get more. Go get more. There's more to you that you have not seen yet. Go get more. Ask him for more. You're going to look in the mirror. You're going to ask for more. There'll be nice music playing because that always helps. And then we're going to have self-serve communion up here. Why communion? Well, right, in John 6, Jesus said he was the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never, ever, ever want for more. When you come to communion tonight, though, make it a personal commitment. For those of you who've struggled a little bit with believing that you're more than an ordinary sinner, make a commitment that even if you don't feel differently, you're going to believe that he's at least as good as he says you are. Even if you don't believe it today, make a commitment that you will grow into that belief. If he tells you something wild that's too good to be true, then take communion and say, though I think that's nuts, I commit to letting you grow me to a point where I can believe what you just told me. Make it a personal commitment. That's why it's self-serve. Come up and get your own communion. Serve yourself as a commitment between the two of you. Okay? You are so incredible. You have no idea. C.S. Lewis says that if we actually understood how amazing we are, that we'd be tempted to bow down and worship one another. When God sees you, he sees you as his perfect design. If you will believe that, if you will believe that, you will become more and more like Jesus because Jesus actually believed who he was. Okay? Okay, so let's watch Lion King and then enjoy your mirror time. And hopefully we have sound. following me? Who are you? The question is, who are you? I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. Uh, enough already. What is that supposed to mean, anyway? It means you're a baboon. And I'm not. <laughs> I think you're a little confused. Wrong. I'm not the one who's confused. You don't even know who you are. Oh, and I suppose you know. Sure do. You're Mufasa's boy. Bye. Hey, wait! You knew my father? Correction. I know your father. I hate to tell you this. But he died a long time ago. Nope. Wrong again. <laughs> he 
alive. And I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki. He knows the way. Come on. Don't talk me. Hurry up. Hey, whoa, wait, wait. Come on. Come on. Would you slow down? That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. Simba, you are more than what you have become. You must take your place in the circle of life. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. No, please, don't leave me. Father! like the winds are changing. Ah, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. You see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm going to take your stick. No, 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 no! Not your stick! Hey! Where are you going? I'm going back! Good! Get out of here! <laughs> In Romans, in Romans 8, it says that all of creation is waiting for us to understand who we are. Like the monkey, when you get a glimpse of who you are, 
those that you thought were crazy will stand up and cheer you on. So take your mirror out. Enjoy your reflection. Who do you see? Ask him who you are. And when you're ready, come up for communion. And in the meantime, let me bless you. Lord, I ask that you would bless us to be people who understand who we are, that those who are represented in this room and the lives they will touch will come to greater understanding and revelation of who you created them to be than any people at any time. In Jesus' name. So we'll play some music and enjoy your reflection.